The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. Welcome back, guys, to the Coffee and Compatibility Podcast. How are you doing, Kelly? Good, Eric. Good. How are you? You know, tired. You're getting paged a lot. I know, right? Allocation changes. We got that bolus. Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been busy. But someone who is not too busy to give us feedback on the podcast is a, a fellow director um, down in Augusta, Georgia. Valia wrote us and said that she wanted to congratulate us on doing a, and I quote, terrific job. She loves the episodes. She loves the content. She loves Eric's mom. It, it was awesome. She she liked the episode with Dr. Han. Um, thank you so much, Valia. We no. are so glad that you're listening. We're glad for all of our listeners, and we love to hear from you guys. So don't stop shouting it out contact us give us the good give us the bad give us mostly good we love just hearing the good guys just and the good. love shouting out listeners on air so please uh don't don't forget to shout us out send us new ideas we love hearing from you guys as long as kelly gets all the bad ideas i'm okay with that oh. but speaking of dr han have you completed your reviewer expertise that she mentioned no, I know that I'm not alone because I, as I promised, I've been poking you about this regularly. Have you completed your human immunology subject expert updates? Oh, no, I'm totally, totally delinquent. You did say um, you were going to be delinquent. You told her many times. Yeah. So, Dr. Han, if you're listening, I'm sorry, and I'll do it eventually. We're, we're, we're both really sorry. Don't be mad. Allocation changes, allocation changes. Anyway, today uh, is the start of Lab Week. We have a really exciting show for you. We will be talking to the President and Chief Executive Officer of LifeShare of Oklahoma, Mr. Jeff Orlowski, and two-time transplant recipient, Amy Silverstein. So stay tuned, we'll be right back after this important message. The Ashi store is now open. That's right, you can purchase your Ashi branded apparel, hats, and household items today. Visit us at theashistore.square.site. Welcome back, everyone. We're here today with Mr. Jeff Orlowski. Mr. Orlowski is president and CEO of LifeShare of Oklahoma and the president of the LifeShare Foundation. He has 33 years of experience in organ and tissue donation, and he currently serves as the United Network of Organ Sharing Region 4 Counselor. He's a member of the UNOS and OPTN boards, the OPTN Executive Committee, the UNOS Corporate Affairs Committee, the Donation Board of Trustees for the Musculoskeletal Transplant Foundation, Chair of the AOPO Legislative Regulatory Affairs Committee, Chair of the Oklahoma Governor's Advancement and Wellness Advisory Council, past president of both the Association of Organ Procurement Organizations and Donate Life America, and has served on 
more other boards than I could possibly list. He's co-authored 40 plus peer reviewed articles and has given lectures throughout North America, Asia and Europe. He holds a bachelor's of biology from the University of Kansas and a master's in management from Regis University in Denver and has been honored with numerous awards. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Mr. Jeff Orlowski. Jeff, we've known each other for years now, so I hope you're okay with us calling you Jeff. Absolutely. I would be disappointed if you call, called me anything else. Uh, in addition to all of the other accolades that I just listed, uh, Jeff is uh, a very seasoned wine enthusiast. And I have to tell the audience that I first met Jeff uh, as a volunteer member of the United Network of Organ Sharing uh, uh, MPSC committee, um, and that has a lot to do with uh, making sure that members are operating uh, at a high ethical standard. And we went around the room the first day and introduced ourselves and everybody was supposed to like say who they were and what they do and where they work and what hobbies they have. And I was kind of like at the other end of the room and Jeff was like one of the first. And so Jeff was like, I, you know, collect wine, I taste wines, I travel. I drive sports cars. And after he said that, I kind of like had nothing else to say. So when it was my turn, I was like, I really don't have any hobbies. I just want to do everything Jeff does. <laughs> you have young children, Kelly. That's, <laughs> That's true. I, I just, goals, Jeff, you are your goals, as I'm sure everybody realized from your, uh, your introduction. So I, I would like to start off by letting our listenership um, understand a little bit more about your organization. Your organization is an organ procurement organization, an OPO. That's an acronym that we throw around a lot in the field of transplantation, but maybe not all of our listeners know what that is. So could you explain to listeners what an OPO is and what it does? Sure, absolutely. So uh, LifeShare is one of 57 uh, OPOs designated by CMS in the United States, and each of us provides basically three services to our community, whether that's a state, a multiple state area, or just a portion of a state. Um, our area within that, we're responsible, obviously, first and foremost, for facilitating the donation process and getting the organs from a donor allocated for transplant and working with transplant centers to make that process happen. Um, we also are responsible for partnering with all the hospitals in our service area to make sure that they have appropriate protocols and processes in place so that donors are not missed. And then thirdly, we educate the public in our, in our area and um, try to increase the number of people who are registered donors and increase authorization rates for donation. Um, we are generally um, community-based organizations. And when we say that, um, obviously, if it's a, an OPO that serves multiple states, it's representing multiple communities within that service area. In our case, in Oklahoma, we serve the state of Oklahoma and um, so we look at our community as being Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and then rural Oklahoma. And we have a board that's constructed to make sure that all three of those constituencies are represented, both from the medical community and from the general public, um, so that we serve our communities and not just 
be focused on transplant centers or not just be focused on any one particular group. Um, we're all nonprofit organizations. Um, many of us now also facilitate the recovery of tissues um, and perform those recoveries. Some of us also recover eyes, some do not. If not, we partner with the local eye banks in our area. Um, but generally speaking, we are the go-between from the donor hospitals throughout uh, our service area. In our case, in Oklahoma, there are 145 hospitals. We are the pivot point or the tipping point that gets uh, the potential donor who has died or is in the process of dying in a hospital uh, and their family through the process to the point that a transplant can occur. That is a really big job, um, a really big job, a really geographically spread job. So I know that LifeShare of Oklahoma for years now has won awards for being a wonderful place to work. Uh, transplant work is high stress. The hours are unpredictable. How do you make your organization an appealing place to work, a place that your staff wants to be given those types of conditions? So I, I think we do several things strategically and we started working on these when I first arrived in 2012. Um, and some of them, it took years for them to bear fruit, but we're seeing the benefit now. Um, the first area is, is we have to be mission driven. And for anyone to be um, uh, engaged and happy and, and really fulfilled by working in an OPO, they have to be bought into the mission of the organization. This is not um, a restaurant where you may be a vegetarian, but you can serve steaks, right? If you're not really a believer in donation and transplant, you are not going to probably find working in an OPO rewarding. So being mission driven and making sure that we're recruiting people who are committed to that purpose is the first step. The second step is not losing that mission and the things that we do. It's very easy to get caught up in a lot of the ancillary things that go on around you and a lot of um, background noise that can happen and not stay focused on your mission. And so if you claim to be mission driven, but you're really driven by something else, that's gonna be problematic. And we've really worked hard to make sure that our staff know that our core purpose, which we articulate very simply as saving lives, is how we make decisions. So when we face an opportunity or a strategy or a challenge, the first question is, is what's the best path forward so that we can save more lives? And everything always ties back to how do we increase the number of lives that we save? Um, and then the third thing is we've been breaking down a lot of traditional things that go on in, in donation and transplantation world as a community on the professional side. Um, we're moving away from call and going to straight shift work. Our coordinators, uh, we anticipate, I uh, actually just came from a meeting where I saw an update on a project or a proposal on a project where our coordinators will literally work a 12 hour shift on a regular schedule and um, they will work in a different place day to day because of wherever the activity is, but they will work a shift. We've gone from 24 hour shifts to 12 hour shifts in the last couple of years so that people don't end up working such long stretches, which was common 
when I started in this field and common until recently that people work 24 hours to stretch. Um, and we have begun to balance out the work-life balance types of issues of, of really trying to have people have protected time off. I think, you know, and I know from our experience and everybody knows from experience when you're on call, sort of that feeling that your pager could go off or I'm old enough to have had a pager or that your phone could ring um, and that you could have to drop everything and go to work. And I think more and more today, people want to know I'm either working or I'm off. And so we've worked hard on those things and then rewarding people for their performance and rewarding people well for what they do. We have among the best benefits in our communities that we serve. Um, we really put a lot of effort into not just throwing more money at people in the form of salary, but making sure we're giving them great healthcare benefits, adequate time off and those kinds of things. And all that results in a better workplace. The last key in that whole thing is engaging them in improvement. So we're a lean organization. We use lean principles for all of our process improvement and organizational processes. And we're always looking to eliminate waste and make people feel uh, like what they're doing is a good use of their time. And we're engaging them and helping us to define how that is and how's the best way to do it. That sounds fantastic, Jeff. I mean, to me, one of the, one of the strongest points I just heard you made make is you know, about establishing a work-life balance and having uh, that sort of separation there. And, you know, to me, it sounds a lot like what you're describing is sort of, you know, at least within Ashi, you know, the sort of family community sense that we've always had, um, at least within our organization. So I want to commend you on sort of, you know, all the hard work that you've done, you know, to establish that within your organization to make it what it is today. So, so thank you very much for all that. Yeah, we, we really have tried to be a family atmosphere. In 2012, we had 59 employees. We're now at up over 150. And one of the things we've worked very hard at is to maintain a family atmosphere. So um, whether it's games, movies, whatever, just to try and make sure that people enjoy coming to work and, and feel a part of it. So you should see us at Halloween when everybody's wearing a costume or well, before the pandemic, anyway, uh, we did a we did a costume contest this year. It was all virtual, though. So, oh, it's okay. This is this feels like we're heading to another reason why my lab is going to make fun of me for not doing things. But uh, that's that is really good good to know and hear about. Um, what do you think is the best part about being an OPL? What do you see as some of the the, the greatest part about being in that organization? Uh, I think the best part about this work and what's kept me coming back for 33 years now is the opportunity to uh, make a difference in so many different people's lives, right? Um, I worked in the ER before I came to, to, to donation and transplant, and basically you had the same interaction over and over again. Um, it was transactional. Somebody has a problem, you help them, you send them home or you admit them and you go on to the next thing. But what I loved about the ER was everybody was different. And anyone who's ever worked in the ER knows just how different that can be, right? But um, for us, we're getting to work with transplant centers. 
We're getting to work with transplant recipients. We're getting to work with donor families. We're getting to work with the surgeons and physicians and nurses in the trauma care system, in the neuro care system. Um, and so we have this huge group of people that we get to interact with and provide a benefit to. And so it's never the same thing every day. And I think the best part about working in an OPO is we get to work with lots of people. We're not just handing somebody their Starbucks as they drive by or drawing their blood as they come in for their clinic visit or whatever. We're getting to do a lot of different things and, and have an impact. So I think the cool part is because we're in the middle, we get to interact with everybody. Hashtag I'm jealous. How do I get to do this? Like the story. We're always hiring. <laughs> you feel free to send me an email. We're always hiring. <laughs> now, Jeff, speaking of work-life balance, a topic that Eric and several other HLA folks and I have been discussing lately was the somewhat unexpected response to a recent allocation change that was made about the middle of March. Uh, I think we, we didn't really expect for the most part um, to see a lot of changes in the way our offer system worked with regards to volume, but that, that was wrong. So could you explain to the listeners what that allocation change was and maybe why it has increased uh, the volume of offers coming through, uh, and maybe the the content of those offers for a lot of folks. Sure. So um, historically, as you know, and some may know, but most probably don't, uh, organs were allocated locally, regionally, nationally, and local was defined as the OPO's area. And so the local transplant center centers and the local labs would get contacted by their OPO to say we have a donor and then they would get samples and then we would find out more about the donor and the process kind of evolved over time. And now what's happened is, is that allocation basis has been changed to geographic circles and is moving to what they're going to call continuous allocation where there's no boundaries at all. And the idea is to broaden allocation theoretically thereby increasing access for difficult to transplant people and also theoretically leveling the playing field from place to place in terms of access, um, all of which are very important goals. I think the, the challenge of this is you're now getting offers as a transplant center, as a lab, as an OPO from all over the country when there are organs that are being offered for a patient so here in Oklahoma, when the heart system changed a couple of years back and the lung system changed about three years back, we saw a transition to from more than half of our hearts and lungs being transplanted in Oklahoma to less than 5% of our hearts and lungs are being transplanted in Oklahoma. Our transplant center is just as busy, which means they're flying out more. Well, compared to hearts and lungs, kidneys a much higher volume activity. And I just don't think people did sort of the exponential math of how many more patients, how many more offers uh, that was going to represent. Some of us kind of tried to warn that we thought this might be a bigger deal than we thought, but I don't think it was easy to model or to quantify. And, and practically speaking, I'm not sure that it's going to change as we move uh, forward because the list is just so big. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know some of the discussions that you and I have had um, kind of revolve around some of the ways that the field has been evolving. And some of those ways are, are very positive. I mean, that's our goal is always to move in a more progressive direction to get more people transplanted and to better honor those donor gifts. Um, so we've talked about that in the context of um, technology like perfusion or um, maybe utilizing donor demographics differently or changing the way that we um, register donors. So I, I wanted to ask you um, two big overarching final questions. One of those is what as a transplant community from your perspective do you think we're doing really well? And maybe you could address that question in context of some of those items. And the second is, what do you think we really need to work on and do better? I think um, what, you know, I think those are both awesome questions. And I'll try and give concise answers in the interest of time. But I think from the really well standpoint, what we're doing really well right now is we are um, seeking to maximize the benefit of transplantation for donor families for transplant recipients, for people who are on the waiting list, um, getting organs to patients and getting more people off the waiting list. And there certainly is lots of discussion about how do we grow the supply of organs, but I think just having more doesn't necessarily equate to more benefit unless we fix and address some other challenges. And there's a lot happening with improving getting organs around transportation-wise, allocation rules, et cetera. So I think we're really good at being focused right now on trying to maximize the benefit. I think the, the challenge for us is, is we need to remove the disincentives that impact that. And, um, you know, the reality of it is, um, Transplant centers are reimbursed the same, whether the kidney is an ideal kidney that is going to be out of the hospital in four or five days, or is someone that's going to require some dialysis and may have a longer um, hospitalization. And I think if we're truly to maximize the benefit of an aging donor population that's less trauma and more medical causes of death, we have to acknowledge that not all transplants are created equal and remove the disincentive to the transplant center of maybe using a 68-year-old DCD. At LifeShare last year, we did 44% of our donors were donation after circulatory death. The discard rate of those organs is astronomically high uh, once you get above about the age of 50. In Spain, in Europe, those organs are being utilized fine, but their reimbursement system is different and their allocation system is targeted to get those organs to the right patient. And I think if we're going to maximize don't, transplants, we not only have to work together on the systemic things, we also have to remove the disincentives that transplant centers face because they're ultimately the end user of the organ that's been donated for transplant. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, I, I think those are all fantastic points. Um, I wanna thank you for joining us today. Your schedule is so busy and we're so honored to have you. 
I think a big takeaway from this for me especially is all that you're doing for your staff and your organization. Um, we can't do this work without wonderful people who are mission driven. Uh, and the points that you make are really important points for anybody working in transplant to consider um, for their staff and the enrichment of what they do and to be mission driven. Thank you so much, Jeff. I am so excited to welcome our second guest, uh, Mrs. Amy Silverstein. Ms. Silverstein is the author of My Glory Was I Had Such Friends, uh, soon to be a limited series on Apple TV, and Sick Girl, which is a winner of Books for a Better Life Award and was a finalist for the Borders Original Voices Award. Mrs. Silverstein holds a Juris Doctor degree from New York University School of Law and has worked as a corporate attorney. She currently serves as a patient representative for the American Society of Histocompatibility and Immunogenetics, the American Society of Transplantation, and the SRTR, and has served on the United Network of Organ Sharing Board of Directors. She has lived with a transplanted heart for 33 years. Please welcome Ms. Silverstein. Amy, I hope we can call you Amy. Of course, yes. Sure. So uh, beyond thrilled um, to have you here. Um, so Amy, can you start um, by telling our listeners your story? Uh, I, I think it'll really help the listenership um, come back to the mission and remember um, that patients are the reason we do what we do. Of course, I'm happy to. Um, I was a, a really healthy kid, the kind of kid that never even got strep throat, um, even though my sister had it every couple of months. And then when I was in law school in my early 20s, from out of nowhere, I had heart failure. Um, they didn't exactly know why. They figured it was a virus. Six months later, I needed a transplant. And I waited, um, hospitalized for a couple of months at what was then Columbia Presbyterian in New York. Uh, the problem was arrhythmogenic. They were running in with the what was then the uh, defibrillator cart. You know, they didn't have those little pads you can put on. And I was defibrillated daily. <laughs> you know, it was a very, very rough time. It's amazing that I made it. Um, but I did. Um, I received the heart of a 13-year-old girl. They told me that. Uh, they told me where she was from. Um, and in those days, I wasn't allowed to uh, send any kind of letter or anything. Uh, so that's the way it was back in 1988. Um, at the time of my transplant, my, my doctor told me at Columbia that if I was lucky, I might, lucky, you know, I might eke out 10 years with my heart. The year was 1988. That's what they were saying. Now, you'll probably hear me talk about today how it's really not all that different, is it? Um, life expectancy for heart transplant 33 years later, but that's a whole other thing I'll get into. But that's what they gave me. And, um, I, uh, my then boyfriend actually proposed to me while I was waiting for the heart in the ICU, which was insane because that would have made him probably a widower by the time he was 35. <laughs> but I could spend a whole podcast on the kind of man this is, the kind of human being, but he loved me in an insane kind of way. And uh, we took a risk. And um, 
you know, uh, that part lasted 26 years. Um, I do want to talk about it a little bit from an HLA perspective because it's kind of interesting. And, you know, parentheses, I didn't know that Ashi existed until, um, until Anne reached out and Kelly reached out and asked if I wanted to be a patient representative. I'm like, uh, what am I representing? What is Ashi? You know, I, I just thought, you know, back in 1988, there was no matching. It was just, do you have the same blood type? That's what I thought. And then um, when I had my second transplant, which I'll get to in a minute, um, I thought that Dr. John Kabashigawa just did it himself because um, he's super smart. Um, but I love the idea that Ashi is in there doing this. I just, it's, I love to feel that I'm taken care of in this grand way because transplant is, is an enormous undertaking for the patient once they have it. So it is, it is a good feeling to know that so much went into making it as good for me as possible. So I am really heartened, no pun intended, to have to know that she is involved. So let me, looking back on, you know, what sort of went wrong? You say what went wrong in 26 years, right? That's, that's a success, okay, I know. But when I tell you I, I, I haven't had a pat of butter in 33 years, I haven't had a pat of butter in 33 years because I don't want to eat fat that is going to go into my arteries. Now, I know that's not vasculopathy, but it can't help, you know? So when I tell you I jogged miles, no matter how sick I felt, no matter what infection I had. So I did everything, took every pill, did everything, had 75 heart biopsies because that's what they did at Columbia in those days. I don't know that they've changed. Um, and those heart biopsies wound up nicking my tricuspid valve and I needed an open heart tricuspid valve surgery on my transplanted heart. Not done, not good, and necessitated blood transfusions. I had no idea that blood transfusions aren't a great idea, but I never felt the same after that and it was quickly downhill. Um, and I did have antibody mediated rejection, um, restrictive disease that was very serious. And my doctors at Columbia said, oh, we have to check your HLA, but HLA, what? I don't know what, do I have an HLA? I don't know what this is. And it, apparently it came back very bad, very high. Didn't know what that meant, but I knew it meant that I needed to go out to Cedar sinai in California where they could uh, you know, have the expertise to deal with the level of antibodies um, that were going on in my body. Um, but I still didn't really know what that meant. I only knew it was bad. I headed out to Cedar sinai um, and uh, you know what's interesting actually is the first thing they did was take a Silex level, which they never did at Columbia. And um, they said, Amy, you are, you are way too immunosuppressed. Now, isn't that interesting? Taking so much medicine, had infection after infection after infection after infection, um, and cancer in there too, but I'm not gonna go into that too much. Um, but, and, and it didn't, it didn't do the trick, right? So maybe you give patients less medicine so that they can feel better if they're going to wind up with AMR anyway, that's just a suggestion. Um, anyway, that was eye-opening. And what is the Silex level? Um, so uh, Cedars was going to do the one, two, three punch with me. I had bortezomib. They put a thing in my neck. I had plasmapheresis and did all that. It did nothing for me. I had C1Q. Uh, by the way. Um, and uh, they had an eculizumib study going on there. Uh, 10 people, 10 patients, they had taken just a few and uh, I was lucky to qualify for it. So I did receive a heart after waiting for a couple of months 
at Cedars. Um, and they started Eculizumab the day I was waiting. You know, I was, they knew the heart was in motion for me. And I received the heart of another 13 year old girl. I am small, I have a very small chest circumference and it's really kind of odd, right? Um, I did have the eculizumab treatments. I found them very easy. I didn't feel anything and they made, they got rid of that C1Q and brought things way, way down. Um, and at this point at Cedars, I'm seven years post, so I'm a total of 33. Um, and I, um, I feel fantastic. Why? I am taking so little medicine. I just take a whiff of tacrolimus and five milligrams of prednisone and vitamins. You know, I don't take anything else. I feel great. I mean, what do I know how long I have? I don't know. I have some DSAs. Uh, John Kabashigawa assures me they are not the dangerous ones. He's not worried about them. All right. I'm not worried. Who knows how long I have, you know, 33 years in a transplant body. It's not great, but at least I know I'm living this great quality of life where I feel good. Right. And so I do not keep my care in, at, at Columbia. I keep it at Cedar sinai even though I live in New York, it's easy to do. And that's pretty much, um, that's my transplant story. That is an incredible story. And I wanna, I wanna thank you for your openness and willingness to, to share that with us. So thank you very much, Amy. And you know, it strikes me because you're such a knowledgeable patient. Right. And speaking from, from our perspective within the laboratory, you know, we don't have this patient interaction. You're so knowledgeable of your own care um, and its impact on you. That's, that's very evident from your story. I'm wondering if you can talk about your opinion and its impact on you is the Cures Act, which for those of you who don't know, involves a number of things, but pertinent to this conversation is the sort of immediate release of medical data and in particular medical testing data to patients. So would you mind speaking about that a little bit? Sure. You know, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I am a patient who knows a lot. In some ways, I know too much. And the, you know, the too much um, could keep me up at night, you know, uh, but I sort of accept death, you know. Um, so I do like the idea of, of giving patients information about, you know, how they're going to do. I mean, HLA really is, is very, um, it, it, it's, it's like looking into a crystal ball in a way. It gives a lot of information. Um, but, you know, you know, let me just ask you, um, you know, if you could do, you know, a DNA test and find out, you know, if, if you're likely to die in the next 10 years, would you want to look at that information? Yeah, you know, that's, it's a good way of sort of framing the context of it. And I'm probably not the target audience to answer that because my answer would be, I totally would. Um, okay. First of all, involves <laughs> yeah. sequencing. I would basically sequence anything. Um, okay. And yeah, I'm a big proponent of I'd, knowledge is power. Um, and and mm. so any yeah. of that is what I would be in favor of there. But I think you brought up an interesting point in that, you know, knowledge comes with risk, right? And on giving, being given that information has complications. And I think something I personally struggle with regarding the Cures Act is where do we draw the line, 
all right? You're very knowledgeable, but the last thing I would want to do is, you know, cause additional harm and stress on, on patients. Right. So I think that's just interesting to hear your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, it's tough, right? It's, there's, it's, there's it's no tough. black or white. It's tough, but I mean, there is an argument that if you know, gee, it's not, it's not all that good, then you're going to, as I call it in my own life, you front end it, you know, you know, and maybe you do have that pat of butter because it's not going to make a difference because you don't match here and here and here eat the butter. Okay. I mean, so, you know, I, 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 you know, from a policy standpoint, it sure sounds good. More information is better, but information is not power when it comes to transplantation. Transplantation, it is not. I wish it were, and that is why I have an argument every year with Dr. John Kabashigawa about whether to do an angiogram. I've had thirty-five of them. Thirty-four of them were not actionable. They were unnecessary. Okay, because I was good. And when the thirty-fifth came up, I wasn't able to run anymore, and I knew it was going to be bad. So. Um, information is not power because you, you then, you know, you, you have that angiogram and it turns out bad and there's nothing you can do, <laughs> you know, you're going to die or get another transplant. So thank you for that powerful information. It does nothing for me, you know, so don't put me on that angiogram people. So I have that same thing here with, you got the information. It's powerful. No, it not. It's not, we don't really have, let's be honest. We don't have the things that fix this yet reliably. We don't. You know, so that's how I feel. Yeah, this is this is a really great discussion. I think that, you know, there's different data that's impacted different way by the Cures Act. There are some things that I think everybody feels a doctor and patient should have a dialogue about before the patient sees those results, because we don't want the patient, you know, to uh, get so upset about the results that you know, something bad happens. But, you know, do we see HLA in that context? Probably not. <clears throat> I think most labs that are censoring their HLA data in relation to the Cures Act are doing so because they also have donor protected health information on the reports. But to your points, Amy, you know, should should groups think of a different way to report this data so that patients can have access to it from the sheer point that with this data, even if the um, patient doesn't really understand all the details or implications of it, it could open a dialogue between the patient and the doctor and the patient would have the option of being privy to that data and opening that dialogue on their own rather than waiting mm -hmm for the physician to call them. Yeah. You know, that's a, it's a tough call, Kelly. I, I, I you know, I come back to, if you know, uh, you know, Eric's answer was in one way, but you might have a different way about whether you want to know some things that might not bode well for you. And I like the dialogue, but again, where's the dialogue getting us? I, I just don't know unless somebody is like, you got no antibodies and you've got the best shot possible. You know, you win the lottery. And that's great, you know, but a lot of us don't have that. Um, so I, I feel mixed about it. Um, I'm glad I know, uh, but, but even though it's not great news, it's still good news, you know, I, it's still the best news I can possibly have. So I, don't, I, I wish I could be more specific and represent more patients, but I know that I look at this sort of from a different view. You know, I'm not your typical, you know, patient in many regards. 
I think that's great. That's a very important perspective, and I'm so grateful that you're sharing it with our community today. Um, I, I wanted to take that and, and segue into the fact that you are the first patient ever to give a talk um, at the cutting edge of transplant meeting uh, that was just held a little bit ago this year. And that talk really delved into a lot of what we're getting right from the patient perspective in the fields of transplantation and a lot of suggestions about what we could do better. And a lot of our listenership didn't get to um, hear that talk very likely. So I kind of wanted to take the fact that you gave that momentous talk and uh, transition it into these final two questions. From your perspective, what are we doing right as a transplant community? And from your perspective, what should we be working harder at? What can we do better? Right. So from a trans, from a perspective, my perspective, I, I think that you're doing a great job getting more people transplanted um, by reducing their um, sensitivities and um, trying new things with DCD. And I'd like to see more of that and other ways to, you know, increase the transplants that are done. Um, I'd like to see more of that, but I, you know, there are definitely more transplants now than there were in 1988. Um, that, that being said, I'd really like uh, the transplant research community to focus on keeping us alive longer than one year. Um, there is scanned research uh, being done to help patients survive 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I look at these pediatric kids and I just feel like, gosh, you know, we have to do better. There are so many. Um, so um, I also think that um, more transparency and honesty about what transplant is. And I hope that the TV show does this, and I know it will, that transplant is not a picnic and we can be grateful. Gosh, I'm so grateful. I can't even, I'm oozing with gratitude. I can't even, how lucky am I? But at the same time, transplant is no free lunch. You pay for your lunch, as Dr. Kabashigawa says, and it's true, it's hard. And, and people die early. I don't know one single person alive from when I was transplanted. They are long gone. And so it is a wonderful thing that, that doesn't stay wonderful. Um, and I would really like to have transparency about that. So transplant patients can feel validated about feeling grateful and also frustrated, sad, tired of being ill, you know, that comes after transplantation. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been an outstanding time talking to you, getting your perspective. I know it won't be the last time that we hear from you, and I'm so excited that you were involved in our show today, involved with ASHI, keeping us focused on the mission and the patient perspective. Thank you so much. So Kelly, what did you think of our guests that we just had, Jeff and Amy? I thought that they did a fantastic job of presenting, you know, the big picture of what an OPO is, you know, the issues they're faced with, you know, and importantly, Jeff, I thought highlighted, you know, something that impacts all of us, no matter what you do, you know, the work-life balance. I think has been so heavily impacted with the pandemic and people remote working that 
you know, it's something we all should be cognizant of. And, you know, I thought that his organization's work on that, uh, you know, is important to, to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, preserving that family feel, it's, it's so important. And that, that's great to hear because that's an Ashi trait too. We as a community are a real family oriented community. And I think when you work in a kind of an unpredictable 24 seven, 365 operation, it's really important to preserve um, the meaning and you know, behind what you do. And I think, you know, very often from a laboratory perspective, we're so ingrained in the numbers, um, the accuracy, the reporting, you know, the day-to-day operations. It's so wonderful to hear and remember what's on the other end of that. Um, the patients, the donors, their families, it's good to remember the purpose and the mission of what we do. So I was so glad to hear that message from both Jeff and Amy. Yeah. You know, and I think you brought up a good point that sort of I saw running through both of them was the importance of, you know, medical scientific communication, right. From the OPO community communication about the importance of organ donation and the impact it has. And then from the patient's perspective that Amy talked about, about, you know, providing them with not just here is your HLA typing or your donor specific antibody testing results, but here's what it means. Here's the, how it can be interpreted for you um, and what it means for you, right? So that we don't keep them up at night. Um, You know, and I think that responsibility falls probably more so on us um, within the ASHI community to, to convey that those messaging. And, you know, I don't know about you, Kelly, but Amy's avoidance of uh, butter is Herculean. I'm lactose intolerant. I haven't had butter since I was 20. Well, that's one reason also not to have butter. That's a lot. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Please share your thoughts with us by posting on Facebook and Twitter using hashtag Ashi Podcast. Do you have something exciting to share? Or maybe you'd just like to nominate a guest speaker for our show. Email your suggestions to info at ashi-hla.org. 